podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Fort Sinopoli Cultural Podcast, a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we'll start with a review of our draw to Inter on Sunday. In part two, we'll check in on the top of the table in what was a pretty wild round of Serie A. And in part 3, we'll review our latest Primavera match against Spezia. I'm not going to talk about the European Super League. I thought about it because there are all kinds of reports out there, some of which are accurate, some of which are not. There is a ton of speculation going on. I am tracking it, which is pretty exhausting in itself, but this is going to take a while to play out. Right now, we're seeing a lot of posturing, a lot of threats being made, a lot of reaction from a lot of different people. Most people seem to be opposed to the idea, while others have been keen to point out UEFA's shortcomings and how we've got into this place in the first place. There's a lot of good dialogue going on, but it's best to first start with the facts. I'd recommend two articles that do an excellent job of providing that. If you happen to subscribe to The Athletic, Adam Crafton, together with Matt Slater and James Horncastle, wrote a piece entitled European Super League Explained, The Contracts, Plots, and Threats That Shook Football to Its Core. Gab Marcotti also wrote about it in a piece for ESPN.com entitled UEFA and League's Vow to Fight Breakaway European Super League, What This Means. He also covered it on his ESPN podcast called The Gab and Jewel Show, so check those out. And if you still want me to talk about it, send me a DM and I'll see if I can put something together. Unfortunately, all this talk about the Super League has really taken away from what was a pretty crazy weekend, not just in Serie A, but in all of Europe. Our match against Inter was certainly a part of that, so let's start there. The game finished in a 1-1 draw. We were fortunate to get an own goal from Samir Handanovic, while Christian Eriksen scored for Inter. If I'm being honest, this was pretty much the type of game I was expecting. Both teams appeared to be playing not to lose rather than to win. Inter set up to defend and counter, so Napoli had more of the ball. That made it very difficult for us to create anything in the attack and effectively negated the strengths of Victor Osimhen. Meanwhile, Napoli were very cautious in the attack for fear of that very Inter counterattack. We were treated to a battle between Serie A's best striker and best center back and they did not disappoint, but it was players like Kostas Manolas and Diego Deme who really stepped up at the back. We were fortunate both to score and to concede only one, so for that we must be grateful for a draw against Serie A's top club, a team that had won 11 straight matches heading into this one. We'll cover all of that in this review, and we'll revisit our three keys to the match, but first, let's review the starting lineups. Antonio Conte made one change compared to our predicted 11, and four changes to the squad that he fielded against Cagliari. Inter lined up in their usual 3-5-2 with Samir Handanovic in goal. Milan Skriniar, Alessandro Bastoni, and Stefan De Vrij played in that three-man back line. Matteo Darmian moved over to the left side to start over Ashley Young at left wing back, and Ashraf Hakimi started at right wing back. Marcelo Brozovic started in the center of the midfield with Christian Eriksen to his left and Nicolo Barella to his right. Barella returns from his suspension to start over Stefano Sensi. Finally, Lautaro Martinez returned to the starting 11 after Alexis Sanchez got the start against Cagliari. Of course, he started alongside Romelu Lukaku up top. 
For Napoli, Gennaro Gattuso started the 11 that we expected, which represented one change to the squad that he fielded against Sampdoria. With David Ospina injured once again, Alex Meret returned to start in goal. Kalidou Koulibaly and Kostas Manolas started together again at centre-back. Mario Rui started over LCD Sai at left-back, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started again at right-back. Diego Deme and Fabian Ruiz started in the double pivot. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing, and with Chucky Lozano suspended, Matteo Politano started again on the right wing. Piotr Zielinski lined up in the 10 spot, and Victor Osman started over Dries Mertens at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. These were actually Jonathan Besford's keys to the match from our last episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide. The first was that we had to be switched on at all times at the back, which meant that we couldn't afford costly mistakes. I added that we also needed to defend as a team. I think we definitely achieved this goal. I thought this was a solid defensive performance all around. First, there was the job Koulibaly did on Lukaku, which I'll come back to in just a bit. I thought Kostas Manolas had one of his best performances of the season, in spite of certain listeners thinking he shouldn't have started. He made a number of important plays. Early in the match, he made an excellent block on Lautaro after a dangerous cross from Hakimi. Then just before the break, he made a big clearance after Meret pounced to win the ball from Barella. If Manolas hadn't cleared that ball out, Lukaku was ready and waiting. Then in the second half, he made two really nice slide tackles. The first was on Lukaku after he got by Koulibaly on the wing, and the second was on Hakimi very late in the match in the area. He was pretty fired up after that tackle on Hakimi as well, which was great to see. Now, I know it's tempting to blame Manolas for the goal. It certainly didn't help that the camera zoomed in on him for a couple of seconds after the ball went in. He had to make a play on that ball. Otherwise, Lautaro was waiting. It's just unfortunate that the ball sat up for Eriksen and he struck it perfectly into the bottom corner. You just have to tip your hat to Eriksen there. It was a great strike. Jonathan and I had two concerns defensively heading into this match. The first was Ashraf Hakimi's pace on the wing. He was a nuisance all night. He played the initial ball that led to the goal. But other than that, I thought we did a pretty good job of limiting the damage. Whether it was Mario Rui, Koulibaly, Manolas, or even Insigne, we collectively did a great job of slowing Hakimi down. The other concern was the counterattack. I thought we did a good job of stopping that as well. I'll come back to Gattuso's tactics a little bit later, but we needed a team effort at the back, and we got it. I mentioned the clearance that Insigne made in the first half, Politano tracked back to make a good tackle on Eriksen in the second half, and we saw Fabian and Demme make plays at the back as well. Eriksen and Barella were constantly looking for the ball over the top, and more often than not, Koulibaly was there to intervene. This was actually a rare weak performance from Barella, which certainly helped our cause. I know Inter hit the frame of the goal twice, and this match easily could have ended 3-1 or 3-2 if you count the time that Politano hit the frame, but all in all, I was really pleased with this defensive performance. The second key to the match was that we needed to be patient on the ball and not force the play. I think we did okay with that as well. We might have forced the play a little bit, but I think that had a lot to do with how Inter set up at the back. They played in the mid block that we expected, defending in the 5-3-2, or you might even call it a 5-3-1-1. Lukaku sat up top while Lautaro played a little bit deeper, which I'm sure was by design to facilitate the counterattack. 
Inter were quite content to allow us to pass the ball around at the back. Their wingbacks dropped, which effectively negated the runs of our fullbacks. The three midfielders protected the center of the pitch, which made Inter next to impossible to penetrate. There was simply no space to pass with so many bodies in front of the Inter box. We were forced to keep the ball on the outside and then play the cross, with Inter's big center backs waiting to clear the ball out. When you're playing against a system like that, you don't have much of a choice but to force the play. The final key to the match was that the final ball needed to be better. I'm going to call this one a push again because of the way Inter set up. We hardly had any chances to begin with so there weren't many final balls to play. If you look back at our chances, none of them really involved a key pass. Our goal came off of a pass and a Handanovic error. Politano hit the bar after the ball fell to him in the area. Demme had a chance after Mario Rui mishit his shot and Di Lorenzo had a header from a set piece that narrowly missed the far post. So I have us achieving our first key and pushing on the other two, which I think is pretty consistent with this result. I'll close with three comments. The first is regarding the in-game battle between two heavyweights in Koulibaly and Lukaku, which was an absolute pleasure to watch. If I had to pick a winner between these two, I'd give Koulibaly the edge, but just barely. You could see the plan from the beginning was for Koulibaly to man-mark Lukaku, and for the most part, he did a good job of it. The most important stat is that Serie's second top scorer did not score. He certainly came close, hitting the frame twice, first redirecting a Brozovic shot and then by inadvertently deflecting an Eriksen cross. Now Lukaku did beat Koulibaly a couple of times, drawing a yellow on the Senegalese international. Koulibaly was fortunate to not be cautioned early in the match when he basically tackled Lukaku at midfield. Had that happened, Koulibaly could well have been sent off in this match. Mind you, Lautaro also got away with a foul that should have earned him a yellow card as well, in fact for a foul on Koulibaly. But keeping Lukaku off the score sheet was a small win in itself. The second comment I want to make is on how we used Victor Osiman. I know a lot of people were frustrated that we didn't use him properly and he didn't get enough service. Again, going back to the way Conte set up to defend, it was practically impossible to use Osiman properly. By not pressing, Inter didn't allow us to stretch them, which meant the long ball was never on for Osiman. With those three midfielders playing in the center of the pitch, it was extremely difficult to play through balls like the one that Mertens did in the Sampdoria match. Even though I had Osiman in my starting 11, I wouldn't have been surprised if Mertens started for this very reason, and therefore I wasn't surprised that Mertens replaced Osiman off the bench. The last comment I want to make goes back to a discussion I had with my friend Gaetano, who we've had on this show a couple of times now. If you tuned into the Raf and Raf rant, you would have heard me make these points there already. Gaetano's view was that this was a must-win match, and I know he's not alone in that boat. I definitely respect that opinion, and there's definitely a case to be made for it. Had we won, we would have moved past Juve in the table and into a top 4 spot. Instead, we allowed Lazio to pull within 2 points of us with a game in hand. Now, to an extent, our fate is not within our control. My view is a bit different. Before the match, I cautioned people not to overreact to a loss, so obviously I was quite content to get a draw here. Inter came into this match having won 11 matches in a row, and in 7 of those matches, they did not concede a goal. Just looking at the remaining schedules for the top 7 teams, my target for this match and the next was to get a total of 3 points. With a win over Lazio we would have collected 4, so I'd be very happy with that. We should also look to win that Lazio match by 2. Lazio beat us 2-0 in the first meeting, so if we win by 2 we'd also own the tiebreak based on a far superior goal differential. 
Again, looking at the schedule, I think we will have opportunities to make up the ground that we lost this round. We'll talk more about that in part two. Next, let's check in on the top of the table. Heading into this round, Inter were top of the table by a wide margin, 9 points clear of 2nd place Milan. Juve were only 1 point behind Milan, and Atalanta were only 1 point behind them. We were in 5th place, 2 points behind Atalanta, and 4 points clear of Lazio. Finally, Roma were 1 point behind Lazio in 7th. So let's start with Milan, who beat Genoa 2-1 on a goal from Antti Rebic and a Gianluca Scamacca own goal, while Mattia Destro scored the lone goal for Genoa. Davide Ballardini made six changes to the side that was defeated by Juventus in the previous round. Meanwhile, Zlatan Ibrahimovic was not in the squad for Milan. He was serving his suspension after picking up a dubious red card for descent against Parma, so Rafael Leao started in his place. Nevertheless, Milan started the match well. They were looking very energetic after Stefano Pioli gave his team the Thursday off to recharge. There was a very good tempo to the start of the match, with Milan expectedly on the front foot. Milan opened the scoring in the 13th minute. Teo Hernandez's free kick went straight into the wall, but Rebic chased down the rebound and fired a perfect shot with his supposedly weaker left foot into the bottom corner at the far post. That early goal was exactly what Milan needed to settle down, and after that they played with real purpose and their play was free-flowing. We saw that in the 19th minute when Milan nearly doubled their lead. The ball found Leao in the area after a lovely little interplay between Alexis Salamakers and Hakan Chalanoglu, but Leao slipped when he was taking the shot, and in the end, it was a straightforward save for Mattia Perin. Meanwhile, Genoa weren't really creating anything in the attack. Their game plan seemed to be to go long to Destro, who, despite his age, was actually doing a decent job of getting into space. Destro has a track record of scoring against Milan, though, and in the 37th minute, completely against the run of play, he did it to them again. It wasn't on a long ball, though, it was from a corner kick, which is more how you would expect Destro to score. Miha Zach played an outswinging corner kick, and Destro beat Fikayo Tomori to the ball, and head into the bottom corner. Tomori will be disappointed with himself. His defending was really quite poor on that play. That was Destro's 11th goal of the season, three of which were against Milan. He's now scored four goals in his last five games against his former club. 
Milan were back on the front foot at the start of the second half, and Rebic should have scored early in the half just like he did in the first. Tomori and Salamakers played a lovely give-and-go before Tomori served the ball up on a platter for Rebic in front of the goal, but somehow the Croatian put his shot over the bar. Simon Kair came close as well in the second half, but his header from the corner kick narrowly missed the bottom corner. With Milan pushing for the goal, there was plenty of space for Genoa to counter, and they had their chances too. As the match wore on, Milan seemed to get a little bit unsettled. They were giving the ball away a little too easily, whether it was a heavy pass or players seemingly not on the same page. However, Milan got the bit of luck that they needed and went back ahead in the 68th minute. This goal also came from a corner kick. For a second, I thought it was Mario Mandzukic who scored off the bench. I was fully expecting him to be rewarded after he donated his salary for the month of March to a charity of the club's choosing. That was his way of contributing since he wasn't able to contribute on the pitch. As it turned out, the ball bounced off the back of Skamaka and into his own goal. I'm not sure what Skamaka was doing there turning away from the ball, but in any event, Milan were back ahead. Credit to Genoa, they kept on playing. Ballardini emptied his bench, bringing on Eldor Shomurdov, Goran Pandev, and Valon Barami, and that seemed to work. Genoa were all over Milan in the final stages of the match. Milan looked nervous, they couldn't keep hold of the ball, and Genoa got their chance to level in the 86th minute after Gigio Donnarumma made a rare misstep, fumbling the Genoa cross. With Donnarumma down and out, Andrea Maziello and Barami both had low hard shots on target and both were cleared off the line by Milan center backs. The first was blocked by Kair and the second by Tomori. It was a nervy end to the match, but in the end, Milan walked away with all three points, even if just barely. Later in the day, Atalanta beat Juventus 1-0 on a late goal from Ruslan Malinowski. Remarkably, Juventus was the only team in all of Serie A to not score a goal this round. Credit to the Forza Italian Football Podcast for pointing that out. That was the lowest scoring match in the round, which is also surprising considering the league's highest scoring team was involved. That's partly because the league's top goal scorer was not involved. On Saturday, Andrea Pirlo made the surprise announcement that Cristiano Ronaldo would not be in the squad due to a hip flexor issue. Nevertheless, Juve looked strong early on and it seemed like this could be like their win over Lazio, where they actually excelled without Ronaldo in the squad. It wasn't high scoring, but it certainly was an entertaining match. Both sides were playing with intensity and purpose. We may not love Daniele Orzato, but I do think he was the right official for this match. He was letting them play, not stopping the play every time a player threw himself to the ground. There was a great tempo to the start of this match, at least in the opening half hour. Both sides defended really well. They each had five blocked shots. Once again, Giorgio Chiellini was a big part of that for Juventus. Surprisingly, Jose Luis Palomino had an excellent game starting in place of the suspended Christian Romero. He's usually a liability for Atalanta at the back, but he had arguably his best performance in an Atalanta shirt. Neither side recorded many shots on target, but like I said, they had their chances. Atalanta's best chance prior to the goal came about midway through the first half. Matteo Piscina got into the area after some quick passes from Atalanta, but he pulled his shot wide of the mark. Alvaro Morata had Juve's best chance after Joachim Mele conceded possession in his own box. Morata took one too many touches before taking the shot, and in the end, his chip shot was cleared off the line by Berat Jim City. Both sides had chances in the second half as well. Both Luis Muriel and Duven Zapata had efforts, narrowly missed the target. Morata had a shot on target from a sharp angle, but Golini kept that one out. I thought Golini had a decent match. He had a couple of plays off his line that were effective, even if they were a little bit awkward. In the 72nd minute, Giampiero Gasparini replaced Meili with Ruslan Malinowski. 
which proved to be a wise decision. In the 85th minute, he had Atalanta's best chance of the match with a free kick from well out that was destined for the top corner, but Wojtek Szczesny got across to make the save. However, Malinowski got a second chance on the ensuing corner kick, and he made the most of it. He was also a little bit lucky as the shot deflected off Alexandro before finding the back of the goal. You did feel like the winning side would need a bit of luck. I spoke to fans of both clubs and they both felt like their side deserved the win, so perhaps a draw would have been the fair result. Nevertheless, Atalanta took all three points and not only did they jump over Juve in the table, they also owned the tiebreak on Juve as well. Meanwhile, Lazio beat Benevento in a wild 8-goal affair that finished 5-3. Lazio got a brace from Chiro Immobile, one goal from Jalkan Correa, and two Benevento own goals. Marco Sao, Nicolas Viola, and Kamel Glick scored for Benevento. Lazio got off to a positive start with Chiro Immobile hitting the upright for the second time in as many matches. The setup to the play was lovely. Sergei Milinkovic-Savic switched to Mohamed Fares on the left wing, and he volleyed his cross to Immobile in the area. Then, in the 10th minute, Immobile thought he got his goal. The play was initially ruled offside, but after a VAR review, the goal was given. However, the replay showed that Fabio De Pauli actually scored in his own goal, so Immobile was still chasing his 150th goal in Serie A. However, the way Immobile was playing, it did feel like he was going to get his goal, and it finally came in the 20th minute. It was only fitting that the play was set up by Luis Alberto and Milinkovic Savic. I wonder if Immobile still thought he was credited with the first goal and maybe that took the pressure off of him a little bit. He took the pass down beautifully in the area and fired emphatically into the top corner. Lazio added a third from the penalty spot. That play started with some smooth passing from Lazio out of the back to break on the counter. Immobile played Correa through. He was 1v1 with Lorenzo Montipo who made the save but his momentum carried him through Correa and the penalty was given. Full credit to Immobile who allowed Correa to take the penalty. He was obviously trying to give his strike partner a boost in confidence. That's still risky though. We saw Lukaku do the same thing last season. I believe it was for Lautaro Martinez who missed the shot and then Inter dropped points in that match. Fortunately for Laziali, that was not the case here. Correa put the penalty away and Lazio were up 3-0. Lazio looked like they were coasting to victory, but just before the break, Marco Sao scored a gorgeous curling shot to remind Lazio that this match was not over yet. Lazio responded immediately after the break. Once again, Immobile played Correa through, this time on the left side of the area. Correa cut the ball back and it deflected off Montipo and into the back of the goal for Benevento's second own goal of the match. Then in the 54th minute, Lazio were awarded a second penalty. Adolfo Geich got his studs up on the thigh of Milinkovic Savic in the area. This time Immobile did take the penalty and Motipo made the save before popping up to his feet and making an even more impressive save on Ferez on the rebound. Only minutes later, Benevento were awarded a penalty of their own after Adam Marusic grabbed Artur Yonita in the area. Nicolas Viola calmly slotted the penalty away to make the score 4-2. Only 4 minutes later, Viola picked up an assist, or so he thought. He played an outswinging corner kick that Gianluca Lapadula headed into the bottom corner. Both Viola and Lapadula were brought in off the bench. Unfortunately, VAR reviewed the play and determined that Luca Caldirola, another substitute, fouled Immobile on the play, and the score remained 4-2. Viola did get his assist, though, on an identical play in the 85th minute. The only difference was that Camil Glick headed in the corner instead of Lapadula. So with 5 minutes to play, Benevento were within one goal. However, despite their best efforts, they weren't able to equalize. In fact, Lazio added a fifth in the dying seconds of the match. The tireless Marco Parolo broke on the counter and served on up to Immobile who rolled his second past Montipo to put the match away.
Finally, Roma were upset 3-1 by Torino. I'm not going to spend too much time on this match as I don't think Roma can realistically be considered a Champions League contender, certainly not after this loss. For most of the season, Roma have been thought of as the team that can't beat anyone in the top half of the table, but always beat teams in the bottom half. This was actually their second loss to a bottom team in their last five matches, the other one being Parma, and Roma actually have only one win in their last five Serie A matches. It's quite clear that they are squarely focused on the Europa League after they just barely got past Ajax and into the semi-finals. They will have a tough matchup against Manchester United there. Back to this match though, Borja Mayoral opened the scoring only minutes into this match with his 8th in Serie A and his 15th goal in all competitions. He was initially ruled offside but VAR confirmed that he stayed on and gave the goal. Credit to Torino though, they responded really well. They had chance after chance in the first half but Antonio Mirante made a number of saves. Torino did get their equalizer in the 57th minute after Antonio Sanabria headed in Christian Ansaldi's cross. He's been on fire lately, that was his 5th goal in his 8th game since making his debut for Torino. The Granata didn't stop there though, Simone Zaza put Torino ahead with his first touch of the match. That was one of the easier goals he scored in his career. Mirante did well to stop Andrea Bellotti's initial effort but the rebound fell for Zaza in front of the empty goal and he put it away. Zaza definitely left his mark on this match. In the 85th minute, he drew a foul on Amadou Diawara, which was a yellow card offense. Diawara was already on a yellow, so he was sent off. Finally, Thomas Rincon put the match away in stoppage time. Balotti intercepted Roger Ibanez's pass intended for Federico Fazio and very unselfishly squared to Rincon for the tap-in. This may not have been a terribly important match for Roma, but it was a huge result for Torino, who are still very much entangled in the battle for survival. So despite a poor performance, Milan fared quite well in this round, separating themselves a little bit from Juventus and Napoli. Atalanta leapfrogged Juve for a third place. They remain two points back of Milan, while Juve are now two points back of Atalanta. We gained a point on Juve with our draw, so we are now two points back of them. Lazio also benefited, pulling within two points of us. Lazio still have a game in hand against Torino, so if they win that, they would be ahead of us by one point. That's why our upcoming match against Lazio is so critical. I'm not going to preview that match on this episode, I'll preview that in a couple of days. Finally, Roma are now 8 points back of 4th, so like I said, Champions League is no longer a realistic goal for them. That will do for part 2, in part 3 we'll recap our most recent Primavera match. In the final part, we'll chat about the Primavera, who played against Spezia for the first time this season in our match day 10 makeup game. This was actually a really important match. Heading into it, we were sitting in fourth in the table, and Spezia were only three points behind us in fifth. However, Spezia had played two games fewer than us, so if they win those two games in hand, they'd actually be three points clear of us in the table. Technically, Spezia were coming into this match on a three game winning streak. However, prior to their 3-1 win over Salernitana on March 27th, Spezia had not played since February 21st when they beat Regina 2-1. 
We were in fine form coming into this match as well. We were undefeated in our previous five matches, including four wins and one draw. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Spezia lined up in a 4-3-3 with Danny Pucci in goal. Nicola Bertola and Tommaso Mazzi started at centre-back. Leonardo Gabelli started at left-back and Filippo Schuzzo started at right-back. Nicolas Martini started in the centre of the midfield with Nicolo Pietra to his left and Filippo Nobile to his right. Mattia Gadini started on the left wing. Mattia Lianchini started on the right wing. And Vincenzo Pinto started at striker. For Napoli, Emanuele Cascione made a number of changes to the squad that he fielded against Cosenza. He lined up in a 4-4-2 once again with Huberi Dasiak in goal. Oscar Guarino started over Jonathan Spedalieri alongside Davide Costanzo at centre-back. Flavio Romano started at left-back and Vincenzo Potenza started over Benedetto Barba at right-back. Ricardo Cataldi started over Brando Sami alongside Raffaele Virgilio in the center of the midfield. Antonio Cioffi started over Valerio Labriola on the left wing. And Antonio Vergara started on the right wing. Finally, Giuseppe Ambrosino started over Vincenzo Furina up top alongside Giuseppe D'Agostino. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. Napoli were the better side in the first half. Our first real chance didn't come until the 35th minute, but we had a number of half chances before that. Vergara had a weak shot stopped by Pucci in the opening minutes. After that, Vergara and D'Agostino both had efforts missed the target. Then in the 12th minute, Vergara crossed to Trophy, but his shot was blocked. Virgilio had a shot in the 24th minute, but it was straight at the keeper. Likewise, Ambrosino's effort in the 34th minute was straight at Pucci as well. A minute later, we should have taken the lead. Trophy played the ball out wide to Vergara on the right wing. He played the ball to Potenza on the overlap, who crossed back to Trophy in the area. His volley hit the upright, then the ball rebounded straight to Ambrosino in front of the empty goal, and somehow he put his shot over the bar. Trophy had another chance a few minutes later from a sharp angle, but Pucci was attentive and made the save at the near post. Trophy was back at it again in the 41st minute, carrying through the midfield and into the Spezia half. The young forward had Ambrosino to his right, but elected to shoot instead and skied his shot over the bar. Finally, just before the break, Cataldi played a long ball into the area. Ambrosino went up to win the header against Pucci. Neither got a touch on the ball, which trickled just wide of the far post. So despite numerous chances, the first half ended nil-nil. Of course, with all of our missed chances, Spezia opened the scoring on their first shot on target in the match. After a quick give and go, Leoncini played Pinto into the area. Guarino gave him a bit too much space to turn and the striker fired a gorgeous shot across the face of the goal and into the bottom corner. Napoli responded right away though. D'Agostino played trophy through on the left side of the area. He was 1v1 with Pucci and got a weak shot past the keeper, but Bertola cleared the shot off the line. Trophy had yet another chance in the 57th minute. D'Agostino's shot from the left side of the area was blocked and the ball fell for Trophy at the top of the box, but once again, Trophy put his shot over the bar. Two minutes later, Napoli finally got their goal. D'Agostino made a great run on the right side of the box before playing a perfect cross to Ambrosino at the back post. He headed into the empty goal to level the score at 1. Only five minutes later, Spezia went back ahead. Leoncini made a run into the area before cutting the ball back. Costanzo failed to clear the ball out. In fact, he played it straight back to Leoncini. To make matters worse, Costanzo fouled Leoncini as well, and though the defender insisted he got the ball, the penalty was given. Pietra sent Idasiak the wrong way, and Spezia were back ahead. 
Cachona made two changes shortly after the goal. First, he removed Vergara, moving Trophy over to the right wing and brought Labriola to play on the left wing. Then he made a straight swap of Cataldi for Gennaro Iaccarino. Credit to our boys, they didn't let the penalty get them down. They continued to push and nearly equalized in the 74th minute, but Pucci made an excellent save on Guarino's shot from outside the area. The Azzurini were awarded for their efforts in the 78th minute. The two substitutes combined to equalize for the second time in the match. Iacarino passed to Labriola at the edge of the area. He made a gorgeous turn to cut into the area and then blasted his shot into the top corner to make the score 2-2. Napoli had a great chance to go ahead in the 89th minute on a play that started with a Spezia free kick. Idacia caught the cross and immediately rolled the ball out to Trophy. He carried the ball nearly the length of the field on the right wing before playing a perfect ball ahead of D'Agostino. D'Agostino picked the ball up at the edge of the area and was 1v1 with Pucci, but the keeper made the save. We had one more chance in stoppage time, but we weren't able to take it, and this match ended 2-2. This wasn't a great result, but it wasn't a terrible result either. Being so close to Spezia in the table, it means the return fixture will be a big one. With the draw, we tied Antella on 25 points, but they remained ahead of us with a slightly favorable goal differential. They are plus 5 and we are plus 3, with both teams having played 15 matches. We also remained 3 points clear of Spezia. We were supposed to play Crotone on Saturday and had already made the trip when we learned of some positive COVID tests in the Crotone squad, so that match has been postponed. Entella and Spezia both won their matches. Entella beat Frosinone 3-2 and Spezia beat Pisa 2-1. As a result, Entella are 3 points clear of us, but we have a game in hand. Meanwhile, Spezia drew level with us on 25 points, but they have a game in hand over us, so that pushed us to 5th place. So that will do for this match review. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. As I said, I'll be back in a few days to preview the Lazio match on Thursday. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Network.